The cross of Christ is the glorious and greatest of all subjects. It's the very center of the biblical faith. It's the core of Christianity. If you remove the cross or misinterpret the cross, you rip out the soul of the gospel. If we ponder the cross over and over again and uh, read Bible verses on that and read some good solid books on the meaning of the cross, we will have a solid understanding of Christianity and I think we will have the foundation of a transformed life. So today we want to give our attention to what God accomplished on the cross. It was Paul's favorite theme, Galatians 6.14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So Paul sees past the surface of things. He understands the eternal significance of the cross. He sees, he experienced the transforming power of the cross. It's an historical event, but it's a whole lot more than that. And I trust that we will value the cross the way the apostle Paul did. Today is Palm Sunday. And I want us to revisit the cross and develop a renewed passion for what God did in Christ when Christ died on the cross. It will change our whole orientation toward life. I believe if we fail to think deeply about the cross, the world will get a grip on us. And the values that we pursue will be earthly and not heavenly. The text we're going to look at today is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to read a few verses starting at verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God, through wisdom it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. If our heart is captured by Jesus and the cross, it will not be captured by the world. I asked myself a question last week, and I didn't like my answer. Well, maybe last week was better than most weeks. How much time, Wayne, did you spend pondering the cross? Around Easter, it's sort of easier to do that. But I want you to ask that question. How much time did you think about Jesus and his death on the cross for you. John Stott says the cross transforms everything. It gives a new worshiping relationship to God, a new and balanced understanding of ourselves, a new incentive to give ourselves in mission, a new love for our enemies, and a new courage to face the perplexities of suffering. The cross magnifies 
the grace of God, it exalts God, it humbles man, it proclaims God's holiness and our sinfulness, it undermines our self-righteousness and don't we need that, and smashes our pride, it demands a bowed head, a broken spirit, and a surrendered will. But to the unredeemed, the cross is foolishness. It is indeed madness. Look at verse 18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The proud protest, what's the point in the cross? And the answer is, there is no point in the cross if we're not sinful. There is no point in the cross if man has the capacity to somehow assist in his own salvation or doesn't need salvation. The cross is unnecessary and irrelevant if the wrath of God is a myth. One author from the emergent church movement, which thankfully is beginning to die out, actually labels the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, that is, that Jesus died in our place, he rules the doctrine, he labels the doctrine of substitutionary atonement as cosmic child abuse. God the Father abusing his son. That's blasphemy. Human depravity and divine holiness are hard for proud man to accept. Throughout history, the cross has always been despised by the world. There are those who want to delete reminders of Christianity from public life, to remove religious symbols at Christmas time and Easter time, to substitute them with Santa Claus and bunnies, chocolate bunnies. See, the cross is too gruesome for the world. The overweight, jolly man in a red suit is better suited to the mindset of our world. Cute little cuddly bunnies uh, don't bring any conviction of sin. So we want to look at the majesty of the cross, the mission of Jesus was all about the cross. John Stott again, the fact that a cross became the Christian symbol and Christians stubbornly refused in spite of ridicule to discard it in favor of something less offensive can have only one explanation. It means that the centrality of the cross originated in the mind of Jesus himself. Did Jesus know when he was born that he would suffer a violent death? Well, yes, because he knew he was sent by the Father to die on the cross. That glorious plan of redemption was not concocted as an afterthought. In fact, it was planned in the eternal counsels of the Godhead. Christ fully accepted his ordained mission. None of the horrendous events around the cross surprised Jesus. None of this Jesus resented or resisted. 
As his life on earth unfolded, he spoke clearly and openly to his disciples about his impending death. They found it incredulous. To them, it was a startling revelation which didn't fit in with their concept of the Messiah at all. A Messiah as a political leader, as a powerful force for good in the world, a leader to replace the Romans, oh yeah, that's what they wanted. And eventually, Christ will be that Messiah. He will be that King of kings and Lord of lords and will rule on this earth. But when he began to speak of the cross, they were shocked. I think maybe they thought that Jesus has uh, somehow lost his ability to think reasonably. Let me put this up here because I'll go on endlessly if I don't. I've been asking the guys to put up a clock at the back for, we've been in here four years, for four years. And it would help me a lot when I forget to look at this. So uh, we will see if that happens in the next four years. <laughs> I could say I've been, I've been asking someone in this church to, to build a, a nice kind of a, a, a podium up here for 14 years. Oh, yes, Pastor, we'll do it. Uh, this, is, this is not a wooden podium. It's a music stand with a piece of plastic on it. But it's on my prayer list, so we'll see how, how, how we go. Acts chapter, pardon me, uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 31. He began to teach him that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He said this plainly, and Peter rebuked him. Peter was always quite prepared to open his big mouth. And uh, out of great love for, for Jesus, he said, No, Jesus, we want you to stay and rule. We don't want you to die. So Peter was not averse to telling Jesus what he should do. And, uh, but with Christ, there was no beating around the bush. And he said this plainly to Peter that he would be killed and rise again. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I, I just wonder what Peter said. Uh, rebuke Jesus? I don't think so. Uh, and Christ's reply to Peter was pretty blunt. Get behind me, Satan. He's talking to Peter. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of, of man. He did not try to protect the disciples from the ultimate crisis of the cross. He said in the clearest possible language, I'm going to die by crucifixion. Now, he also told them, I'm going to rise again. They somehow didn't hear that part. So this was shocking news to the disciples. Peter was horrified that such a fate awaited Jesus. Uh, so he was about to talk some sense into his master. I wonder if in our prayer life we sometimes attempt to do that. 
So he is rebuked. Peter is, is rebuked. Uh, several times as the cross approaches, Jesus reminds his disciples that the time is getting closer when I must die on the cross. He spoke of it as something that must happen. He must be rejected. And he must rise again. In the Gospel of John, John talks of the hour that was to come. There was something certain at a certain time. And uh, the hour was not revealed to the disciples. Of course, Christ knew the hour. But there was this hour where the destiny of Jesus in terms of the cross was going to take place. We find that uh, in the Gospel of John several times, starting early in John chapter 2 and verse uh, 4, uh, at the wedding of Cana, Jesus said to her, her mother, his mother, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. I'm sure that Mary had no idea what he was talking about. And then if you skip over to John chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. John 7, 8 and 9. My time has not yet come. Your time is always here. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast. My time has not yet fully come. We find similar expressions in chapter 8 and chapter 12 and chapter 13. Finally, in chapter 13, we know we're getting closer because in chapter 13 and verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. He loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. And finally, in chapter 17 and verse 1, When Jesus spoke these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may be glorified in you. So for anybody to say that the cross took Jesus by surprise and it wasn't in the it wasn't in plan B, somehow or A, somehow it became plan B, that's just not true. The Godhead knew of this time before Christ was born. Christ knew about it all through his earthly life. And the closer he got to the hour, the more he tried to prepare his disciples for what was about to happen. There was a few reasons why it was inevitable that Jesus had to go to the cross. He knew he would die because of the hostility of the Jewish national leaders. Right from very early in his ministry, uh, they were upset, for example, that he had, in their mind, uh, healed, broken the Sabbath because he had healed on the Sabbath day. What a, what a terrible thing to do. He healed on the Sabbath day. And so the religious leaders were prepared to take him by force and to kill him. He knew he would die because that's what the scriptures uh, predicted. Back in the Old Testament, it was predicted. And when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus and the two men were with him, uh, Christ sort of preached the whole whole Old Testament explaining who he was and why he came and mentioned his death there also. 
We even have some, some quotes that Jesus made on the cross that are from the Old Testament. Psalm 22, 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 31, 5, into your hands I commit my spirit. Psalm 69, 21, they also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. All predictions fulfilled when Jesus was on the cross. And of course the whole chapter, Isaiah 53, it's, it's, it's all about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He died because of his own deliberate choice. You never hear Christ, well, Christ did say, not my will, but yours be done. And he did say, if it's possible, uh, let me pass from this hour. But in the plan of the Godhead, it was not possible. He was determined to fulfill what was written of the Messiah. He was totally resolved to do the Father's will. This is not fatalism. Christ is not saying, I wish I didn't have to do this, but I guess I do. He did not possess some sort of a martyr complex. He was not gripped with a death wish. This was his mission, Luke 19.10. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Mark 10.45, for even the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. It says in another place that he set his face steadfast to go to Jerusalem. Nothing could deter him. Nothing could deflect him. That's why he uses the terms such as he, he will do this or he must do that. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer before he entered his glory? Yes. He felt under constraint not because he was a helpless victim of powerful human forces. He could have blown them over in a second. Not because uh, this was an inflexible uh, fate and he could do nothing about it. He had to die because he embraced the purpose of God. He laid down his life of his own choice. John 10 makes that very clear. Christ was not dragged kicking and screaming to the cross. We don't hear him yelling and cursing and, and uh, physically resisting those who were taking him to Golgotha. He did not for one second resent the mission that he was called to do. He didn't blame anybody. Not the fickle people who the week before are saying, um, uh, Hosanna. Not the political or religious leaders, and they were certainly, on the, on the human level, guilty. He did not resent his heavenly father. Why do I have to do this? I don't want to do this. This is not fair, father. Never had those thoughts. So, John Stott says, despite the great importance of his teaching, his example, and his works of compassion and power, none of these was central to his mission. What dominated his mind was not the living, but the giving of his life. This final self-sacrifice was his hour, his hour. That was the mission of Jesus, and it was the message of the, of the uh, apostles. I see it's 11.50 now. Somebody put the time up. I think it's only 
1140, but that's okay. The message of the apostles. And what was the central purpose in their focus? They attributed the death of Jesus to human wickedness and the divine plan to both. If you look in Acts, the book of Acts chapter uh, 2 and verse 23. Now, what's going to happen is somebody's going to turn the clock back. Or maybe they're going to probably turn it forward. Um, Stan's not taking care of that. Today. No, it's Curtis. No, Curtis wouldn't do that. Stan Quance would. So, so Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Divine sovereignty planned the death of Jesus. Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You, referring to the people, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So the plan of God and the responsibility of men are linked here. They proclaim that Christ died, the apostles proclaimed that Christ died according to God's saving purpose. It was predicted back in 20, and Luke, or not Luke, Deuteronomy 21, that though anyone who dies on a cross is cursed. Well, of course, Jesus died on a tree or a cross. But the curse does not belong to him. It belongs to us. The judgment belongs to us, but he took it in our place. They pointed to out the significance of Christ's resurrection, and the significance of his resurrection is determined by the nature of his death. A lot of people died on crosses in that time. It's Roman culture, and that was the electric chair for the worst of criminals back in those days. But Christ was raised from the dead because of the nature of his death, which was a redemptive death. Now, no one else who died on crosses back then rose from the dead, but Christ did. The resurrection is really a divine reversal of the human verdict. The human verdict is crucify this man, get rid of him. That's what man is declaring. God replies, this is my beloved son, rise and live. Let all people, let all people confess him as Lord and King. By the resurrection, God glorified the son, approved of his death, exalted him as Lord and King. So the message of the apostles, they attributed the death of Jesus to human wickedness and the divine plan. And they didn't try to figure it all out, nor should we. They proclaimed that Christ died according to God's saving purpose. They pointed out that the significance of Christ's resurrection was determined by the nature of his death. Had he not been the son of God, had he not borne our sins on the cross, his resurrection would not have the significance that it does have. 
and they announced that the cross is a sinner's only hope. The three major New Testament writers, Paul, Peter, and John, unanimously teach that only the cross provides saving hope for the human race. The Apostle Paul defined the gospel as the message of the cross. He said his ministry was about preaching Christ crucified. He said that the cross is the pinnacle of God's wisdom, whereas in the text in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, according to uh, wise man, the cross is outlandish. It makes no, no sense. But it is the sinner's only hope. Uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 2 and verse 24, 1 Peter 2 and verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. John connects the incarnation and and the atonement. But what about the misunderstanding of the cross by, by the unsaved? There's no greater gap between faith and unbelief than how people view the cross of Christ. Where faith sees glory, unbelief sees disgrace or foolishness. What is foolish to the unredeemed is the wisdom of God to the believer. The cross is irrelevant to those who trust in their own goodness. They don't need it. They think they don't need it. Only Christianity esteems and proclaims the, the, the cross of Christ. Islam rejects the cross. The Quran sees no need for a sin-bearing savior. Five times the Quran declares, no soul shall bear another's burden. The Hindus also reject the saving significance of the cross. Gandhi, in 1894, wrote of himself, I could accept Jesus as a martyr, an embodiment of sacrifice, a divine teacher, but not as the most perfect man ever born. His death on the cross was a great example to the world, but that there was anything like a mysterious or miraculous virtue in it, my heart could not accept. Professor Alfred Eyre, uh, the Oxford philosopher, considered Christianity the worst of all religions. Why? Because it rests on the allied doctrines of original sin, vicarious atonement, which are intellectually contemptible and morally outrageous. Charles Templeton, who was once an associate of, of Billy Graham, in his book that he wrote just before he died called Farewell to God said the Christian concept of the universal need for divine forgiveness and failing that the eternal punishment of the sinner is not only illogical it is nonsensical and if Jesus' mission on earth was to reconcile humankind to God any objective judgment would have to conclude that it was a failure Indeed, God's plan of salvation, as it is called, has been a series of disasters from day one. 
This is a man who once preached the gospel and who will have a lot to answer for. Why this antagonism? Why did Charles Templeton despise the gospel and therefore despise Jesus? Because Charles Templeton, along with millions of others, are very, were very proud people who saw their own innate goodness, at least they thought was goodness. And for someone like Jesus to die as a substitute is repugnant to a man who doesn't think he needs any savior. P.T. Forsyth, an evangelical pastor of years back, said, you do not understand Christ till you understand the cross. So we must not buy into any religion, any doctrine, any philosophy that displaces or diminishes the cross of Christ. We must not try to understand ourselves or the world apart from the cross of Christ. Theologian R.C. Sproul says, we live in a topsy-turvy world. The riches of God are considered trash by men. What God esteems, we despise. The search for glory in the cross of Christ is to turn the values of man upside down. The cross stands as the zenith of divine glory. It is tragedy and victory in the same moment. It is scandal and honor, defeat and triumph, shame and esteem. So as I said at the outset, if we don't think about the cross properly, we will never understand ourselves properly. We'll never see ourselves as sinners who need to be saved and redeemed from our sin. So has the cross seized the affections of our heart or has something else? Do we renounce pride? Do we count the world but loss and boast in the Christ alone, sacrificing everything for it? What is the value of the cross in our daily lives? I know we get emotional at, at Easter time, at, at Good Friday service. We have a great, great service at the Calvary Baptist Church every year. I find it a very moving service. I find that, uh, which I rarely do, uh, brought to tears. Uh, just by contemplating what a, what a humongous, what a marvelous thing God has done for us and how desperately I personally need to be saved from my sins through the death of Christ. I want us to sing in closing an old hymn. And I want you to listen carefully to the words. When I survey the wondrous cross, 